Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Talking about new life. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans 6, verse 1. These are the words of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and living God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand that understanding we may believe, and by believing, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. I want to begin this morning by pointing out something rather obvious and self-evident. The obviousness of the thing in question is only the case for those who have taken the time to reflect upon it. I am convinced, based on what I see and hear, that the church today has not, keyword, has not taken the necessary time to reflect on her unbiblical, divergent attitude and posture towards the world. All right? That's a bold claim, and I understand that we're all in the first, first in line in the repentance line. But I don't believe that the church has taken the necessary time to reflect on our very unbiblical, indeed divergent, attitude and posture towards the world. In particular, what I mean is, Christians today have substituted the power of the Word of God in exchange for a religion of passive experience, unaccountable comfort, and undemanding purpose. Passive experience, unaccountable comfort, and undemanding purpose. When Festus, remember in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts 26, when Festus told Paul that he was out of his mind for talking about Christ being first of the resurrection of the dead, Paul noted that none of these things, this is Paul's direct quote, none of these things escape the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner, verse 26. None of the Christian mission has been done in a corner. It's not been done in secret. It's been very much open for everybody to see. And that is all to say that the work of God in the history of redemption, which is, of course, culminating in the death and resurrection of Christ, all of God's works, all of it is a public, lucid, and intelligible course of events. 
All of it was public. Uh, They were not done in a corner. They weren't done in secret. God has been very open and forthcoming with his intentions for the world. Christianity isn't an esoteric religion done behind closed doors. Christianity is a public religion which strikes the religious root of man, the religious root being his heart, the center of his being. Christianity is public, and it deals with the most secret place. Where is the most secret place in all the world? Your heart. It deals with everything from your heart outward. And it's my disputation and contention this morning that Christianity Christianity will not establish a cultural beachhead in the world unless and until those who name the name of Christ come to grips with both the power of the word of God and the public nature of the gospel of the kingdom. We need both. We need the power of the word of God and we need to really believe it. We need the power of the word of God and we need to remember the public nature of the gospel of the kingdom. If if Christians are content to formulate Christianity in terms of a few trite aphorisms, like we just say Jesus is Lord, but we don't live that way. If, if Christians are, are content with that, or worse yet, if they are content to formulate Christianity in terms of whatever they deem to be true and good and beautiful, going so far as to affirm whatever pronouns and expressions the world comes up with next, then the church will indeed suffer and Christians will be complicit in blaspheming the name of God among the nations. Rather than embracing the new creation life we've been given because a tomb sits empty somewhere in the Middle East, just outside of Jerusalem's old walls, we will instead invoke the judgment of God. And we will deserve it. We will deserve it. Which is all to say we need to recover that public nature of the gospel. We need to remember what the gospel does. It is a gospel for the world and all of the world, all of creation. And we need to remember that the power of the word of God. We need to remember that it is the expulsive power, to borrow a Puritan phrase. It can take the idolatry, rip it out, and trash it. That's the power of the word of God. And we need to remember that the new life that the gospel affords us should we submit to the Spirit's lead. Christ is risen. We must now take the land. And the only way we'll do that is if we listen to the inscripturated word in the Bible. Let's look at our text. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11. Just going to summarize that as we go. The Apostle Paul begins in verse 1 with a rhetorical question. This is a rhetorical question. Does grace give us a license to continue in sin? Uh, he's building on an argument already, but that's the, he's anticipating what someone might hear reading this letter as it was read in all the churches. Is this, this grace thing you're talking about, do we have a license to continue in sin? If, if God is gracious, can't we just sin? And that just shows that you're not paying attention. Um, and that's a very... Uh, weak response. Won't, won't God just go on forever forgiving us over and over again? We can just sin. We have a license now because God is gracious. That is the, 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 basically the, the scenario here, the conclusion that somebody somewhere, we've all probably met someone who's thought as much, they're concluding this, and Paul says, no way. May no masete. No way. May never be. 
In fact, Paul asks in verse 2, how is it even remotely possible for people who have died to sin to then still live in it? Notice how he switches the gears here. It's not even possible for you to go on in this sin because you've died to it. How can you still live in it? You're dead to it. How do you live in it? That's like a category error in Paul's mind. He doesn't say it's bad advice or a bad idea, though it certainly is. He says that it doesn't even work that way. You're asking a question that is impossible. It just doesn't work. It doesn't compute. The math doesn't add up. It can't work that way. It's not only illogical, it's completely impractical. And indeed, Paul argues, we are the sort of people whose main identity rests on being dead to sin. By the way, to be dead to sin is a judicial, theological, and covenantal fact. It's an ontological reality. When you are dead to sin because you have a regenerated heart, you can't live in it anymore. It's, it's your, your, before you're converted, you're sort of eating the pig food, not realizing, you, you think it's a banquet, but it's really just rubbish. And then you're converted and realize, oh, that's really bad. That tastes terrible. I can have something a lot more healthy here. You know, That's the way conversion works. And Paul says we're, we're, our identity rests on a certain fact, a certain reality, being dead to sin. So how can we go on acting like that were not the case? It's like saying, well, I'm a Christian now, therefore I can do whatever I want. Well, by virtue of strict definition, you're a Christian. That means something. You can't just do whatever you want. And to what end, of course? Now, Paul immediately goes to our identity in Christ he goes to our identity in Christ, which is exemplified and illustrated in baptism. Notice that in verse 3. He brings up baptism for an important reason. To be baptized is to be brought into a covenantal judicial reality. When we, when we say covenantal, we mean it's a legal judicial thing. You've been brought into this covenantal reality, and what is that reality? The reality of Christ's death. You've been brought into that. Jesus himself, you might remember this in Mark 10, Jesus himself spoke of his impending death as being a baptism. Do you remember that? Mark chapter 10, 38 and 39. That was his baptism. At the cross, the cup of God's wrath would be poured out on Jesus. That wrath is a baptism of wrath. It's a baptism of wrath because God is the thrice holy God and sin is a complete deviation from his will and his law. It deserves wrath. That's the response of God's holiness being violated. He, is, he puts his wrath out and he does that in, in and through Christ on the cross. It's a baptism of wrath against sin. Now, the baptism here isn't simply a reference to the water that's used in baptism, but instead what the water used in baptism points to. What, when you were baptized, it pointed to something. It didn't point to how great you were. It pointed to how great Christ is. And it points us somewhere. It points us to a covenantal death. When you are baptized, you are declared dead. That's what you're declared. You are declared dead. Dead to something dead to the judicial reality of sin. Christ's death baptism 
is illustrated in water baptism. And thus, our baptism today is a baptism into death. It's a connection with Passover and Jesus' new exodus ministry. So we are, in that moment, joined with him, covenantally speaking, in an inseparable bond and unbreakable solidarity that the Lord takes, frankly, very seriously. Um, much of the church today doesn't really take baptism that seriously. Um, I've, I've been in those situations where baptism is like this glorious spotlight of how great you were and you get to jump in the water and, you know, God is good, he saved me. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just so great that I chose him and that I'm the one who, you know, got my stuff together and followed him. And that, that air can kind of be communicated and, and it shouldn't be because the baptism is a bond of solidarity with Christ. You are declaring your wretchedness, if anything, as an adult baptism. But even for you children being baptized, you're wretched. You just don't quite know it yet. <laughs> if the death and resurrection of Messiah is the foundation of our relationship with him, it should not surprise us then to learn that we too must die and be raised. So Paul says here in verse 4 that our identity is rooted in being buried with Christ through baptism into death. Through baptism into death. And since we have solidarity with Christ by faith, illustrated in water baptism, we have new ground to walk upon. All right? That death and resurrection means now you have something to walk upon, namely Christ. His, his path, his resurrection ground. Now notice in verse 4 here that Christ's resurrection from the dead is first the judicial and legal basis of our walking in newness of life today. When we, when we celebrate the risen Christ and our being raised with him, the first thing that we need to see here is Paul says this is the basis and the ground of your walking in newness of life. Long before we talk about resurrection of the body, which we'll get to, there is a legal basis for you walking in newness of life today because Christ is, is risen. You've been buried and raised with him in a covenantal reality now. So in baptism, we're, we're buried into Christ's death, uh, discharged from the law's demand of death, death that hung over our heads prior to conversion. Prior to conversion and baptism, the, the law is nothing but a, a condemnation over you. Because you can't obey it and, you know, and it can't save you, but it's God's law because it's a reflection of his holiness. Now, th this is the law court imagery that Paul will frequently use. There's a legal aspect to this. Paul says Christ's resurrection gives us new life today. Today. We have those who are in Christ have new life today, right now. Second. Paul sees a down payment of resurrection life happening now in anticipation of bodily resurrection later. That's why he can say in places like Ephesians, uh, you're raised up with Christ and you're seated with him in the heavenly places. And you look around and think, well, actually, I'm right here in Fauquier County. No, but you're raised with him and you're seated with him. Well, what is he getting at? He's dealing with covenantal realities here. You, you have the resurrection down payment now in anticipation of a future bodily resurrection. That's the, that's the connection here. We are, he says in verse 5, united with Christ in the likeness of his death 
and certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. To put it another way, Christ's bodily resurrection gives us new life in the present economy of the new heavens and new earth, and in the future, when Christ defeats all of his enemies, 1 Corinthians 15, we will also be fully and finally in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. So we too get resurrection bodies. This is a hotly debated point right now in Christian circles, but that's, that's what the scripture simply teaches. Being in Christ today means we tread upon resurrection ground right now until the end, until the age to come, which is already inaugurated, is then fully consummated. So there is an overlapping of the ages. The old man was crucified with Christ so that sin will be judicially discharged from our lives, and thus we can put that sin to death. Verse 6, no longer being its slave. Verse 7, the judicial work is done in Christ. It's already done, right? There's no ongoing, oh, I have to you know, atone for my sin somehow. No, that is done. It's a judicial death. The death penalty was given to Christ, who was sinless, spotless, perfect, and holy. That's our death now. We claim that death. The solidarity that we once had with sin is supplanted by a newfound solidarity with Christ. Efficacious grace disrupts the old man's way of serving sin so that the new man can stand up straight and walk in resurrection life today. In short, if we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. That is verse 8. If we have died with Christ, it only makes sense we will live with him. Christ, you'll remember, has been raised with an immortal body. Christ has an immortal body, and thus he can no longer die again because death isn't his master anymore. That is verse 9. Christ died once. He will never die again. Indeed, he can't die again. It's already over. His death was a special death. Verse 10, a payment for sin once for all. His life is in service to God. Thus, Christ's work is the basis of our lives now. It's the basis of our lives now. And we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin. That's Paul's argument. You should consider yourselves today dead to sin. Why? Because judicially we are. If you're in Christ, you are dead to sin. So you don't act like you're still alive to it. The verdict is already in and available, not guilty in Christ. And we ought to consider ourselves alive to God in Christ because, verse 11, judicially we are. So these are the categories. Paul, it's a legal category. It's a covenantal category. In your baptism, which illustrates this, you are dead to sin, but you're not just dead. You're alive. You are alive to Christ, so live your life in service to him. Then you won't ask dumb questions like, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Full circle here. Christ will never die again. However, we do experience the touch of death. Do we not? We experience the touch of death. Its sting has been removed, but its presence still looms large. Hence the doctrine of future bodily resurrection. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the barley harvest. We will be resurrected sons and daughters in the wheat harvest when Christ consummates history. But for now, we have newness of life. So Paul says, walk in that. 
Stop trying to raise yourself to sin. You're raised in Christ. So we ask a lot around here, how shall we then live? How shall we then live? What happened on Resurrection Sunday was a transformation of the body of Christ. It was a complete transformation. It was not a resuscitation or a revitalization. Um, it wasn't like these uh, Muslims were talking a couple, week, couple times ago at George Mason. Um, they were there toward the end, and I, we were leaving, had to go, and they were standing there with these posters. And, and I think the one said, um, did Jesus really die on the cross? And I went over. I said, I can answer that. The answer is yes. I, did anybody ever tell you that? Um, but he showed me on that picture, it had a guy, his face, he is the second coming of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has a book about how he is Christ. And it's amazing, right? And so I, you know, tried to engage, but we, like I said, it was kind of a very strange thing. But I, I said, oh, you believe in the swoon theory? And he's like, the what? Well, you don't think Jesus actually died on the cross. Muslims don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. He was severely wounded, but they took him down and then they told the lie that he was alive and yada yada, the rest is history. That's their, uh, that's their, their belief. Obviously, historical problems, but, but here we are. Jesus actually died. He actually died. Uh, they were going to break his bones, if you remember, on the cross, but, you know, chaos was unfolding with the earthquake and they ended up stabbing him under his heart. Blood and water came out. Uh, which is what happens when you have severe trauma, water accumulates, you know, that's what happened. And he, and he died, he, he breathed his last, and the testimony of the apostles and those who were there, they took him off the cross to give him a burial, because at Friday night sundown, Sabbath was happening, and you need to take care of business now, so they did that. They buried him in a rich man's tomb, which is also a garden. He's the new Adam, that sort of thing. But he wasn't resuscitated. They didn't take him down and do CPR. He wasn't uh, revitalized and sort of, he just needed a drink of water and he'll survive the occasion. He actually died. And what happened on Sunday was a new transformation. His body possessed a, a new mode of physical existence. Jesus eats fish with his disciples at the beach. And then there's another story where he just shows up when the door's locked. That's a new mode of physical existence. You're still consuming food, but you can walk through walls, apparently. See, this, was, this moment was the beginning sign of a worldwide new creation renewal. It was the beginning of God's kingdom and will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So we can pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And the basis of that prayer is Christ's empty tomb. So that was the beginning of it all. And we go back to the story of Genesis 1 through 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we find that Adam's death, remember, Adam's death was first a spiritual covenantal death. I don't even like necessarily saying spiritual and physical because we are a, a unified people. We're unified in body and soul, spirit together. But it was first a covenantal death. Um, when, when God warned them, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And it wasn't they ate and then keeled over right away. It wasn't that sort of thing because the fruit wasn't a poison. They were supposed to eat from it eventually. 
they, weren't, they tried to seize their, their calling of king, kingship and maturity first. They weren't ready for it. But God promised death, and for them it was an exile. It was an exile from the garden temple of God. Now, we can call that moment, when Adam and Eve did that, a judicial death that had physical ramifications. All right? Physical ramifications. Later, Adam would, in fact, die physically or corporeally. He, what, what marked mankind from that moment on was a judicial covenantal death where man is estranged from God, right? It needs to be brought near to him by atonement. That happened first, but that came, what came to fruition afterwards was an actual physical death where Adam did, in fact, die one day. His heart stopped. He breathed his last at the ripe old age of, what, it was 930? 930 years? So it was a judicial death first. They were sent out from the garden sanctuary, which later had the ramifications of a physical expiration until Christ came. And I want you to notice what happens here, because Paul, no doubt, he's already talked about Adam earlier in Romans, and now he's making the connection here with Jesus, the second Adam. Jesus' death and resurrection reverses this process. That's why Jesus is raised in the garden, and Mary mistakes him as the gardener. He is the gardener. He is the Adam, the actual Adam that Adam was supposed to be. So we're supposed to be thinking about Genesis here. But after, after Christ's bodily resurrection, Jesus gave a covenantal judicial resurrection to the people of God. He renews their hearts. That's why we have in regeneration, dead hearts become hearts of flesh. Hearts of stone are gone. This is the language of Ezekiel 36. We have a heart that beats for the glory of God, and our lives are reordered thusly. So that happens first. The, the, the judicial resurrection was first, and then later the physical bodily resurrection takes place. So note the connection with Adam. Covenantal death first, physical ramifications. In Christ, what do we have? A reversal of that. What do you have the moment the Spirit changes your heart, you have faith, you're baptized into His covenant, what do you have? Not covenantal death anymore, covenantal resurrection. You have a new heart. That changes first. And then, later, you have a reversal of the problem of physical expiration and death. So covenantal re relationship was severed and breached first, and in Christ, that's the first thing that's restored to God's elect. He changes your heart. He gives you a type, an anticipation of resurrection. Your regenerative heart is now a, a down payment on a future resurrection. Okay? So make that connection. The, but that happened first. The bodily death of Adam came second, and in Christ, that's the second thing that's restored to God's elect, and that is at a later date when Christ defeats all of his enemies. You better believe he's going to do it. Jesus is King Adam II. He came to defeat Satan, sin, and death. He came to roll back the curses Adam introduced into the world. That is what the rest of history looks like, the reverse of the curse. Now, I bring all of this up because the church's cloistered existence in the world, where they separate themselves, sequester themselves from the world, that is a result of failing to see the power of God's word in creating new life in God's people. If you don't think God is interested in changing people's hearts, what will you do? Never talk to anyone about it. 
If you're not convinced of the power of God, you will have nothing but cowardice rule your life. And it's almost as if Christians today don't believe that the Spirit has the power to strike down the woke mob and convert them all in a minute. It's like we don't think it could happen. How do you go into D.C., affectionately called Babylon, when you know it's overrun by wickedness? How do you go in like David? You know, he said all these uncircumcised Philistines, you walk into all these unbaptized pagans, they blaspheme the name of God. We don't believe the power of God. We don't believe that it works like that anymore, generally speaking. We think the power of God is when you witness a pastor with really super skinny jeans light up the guitar, the smoke's there, and he plays this 11-minute ballad, and that's the power of God. You know the image I'm talking about. Perhaps you've experienced it. See, King Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, calls us to new life. Indeed, he gives us new life. The call of the gospel isn't to implement new habits or develop new prospects or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is good news, not good advice. It's news that is announced. The good advice crowd, they want moralism. You know, be nice. Don't offend anyone ever. And that's a false gospel of modern pro proponents of this self-discovery thing. You know, if you don't think sin is a real heart problem, you just think it's sort of like an oopsie-daisy, the Joel Osteen version, and uh, you don't really preach the gospel and the power of the Word of God. You just think you just got to, well, you know, you just got to be more moral and that sort of thing. And that's overrunning our churches today. And they want you to look inside and find that spark of deity that's lurking around somewhere, right? But instead, God calls us to new life. He calls us to resurrection life, and he provides the means necessary for this to happen. How did God accomplish this new thing in the earth, as Jeremiah 31 puts it? How did he accomplish this new thing in the earth? The wonder of Resurrection Sunday begins with the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was this moment that God would henceforth invade his creation with his beloved Son, cloaked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, dwelled among us, he invaded the great enemies of Satan, sin, and death, plundering their manifestations in the world. He came to liberate the captives, the very thing he stands up in Luke 4 and reads in the synagogue. He goes straight to Isaiah and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Guess what I'm doing? I'm liberating the captives. And if you don't think you're a captive, I'm not here to liberate you. You're a prisoner of your own self-righteousness. But he came to liberate the captives, to bring justice to the nations. And as we saw last week on Palm Sunday, the king's entrance into the city of kings was not for a cute, it was not met with this cute reception with flowers in a, in a buffet. Rather, it was an entrance into the once great city, which had now become sullied by idols. Jesus was stubborn. Jesus was intransigent. He came into the world on a mission, and that mission was the impartation of resurrection life on an unsuspecting world. 
God had promised in Ezekiel 36, 26 that he would give new hearts to his people by putting a new spirit within them. He would cause them, Ezekiel says, to walk in his ways. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to do just that. He came to bring a new creation order and that for the healing of the nations. And sadly, today, the church has gotten so much completely backwards. When Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under a law, but under grace. Heaven help me if I hear that again. Interpreters have completely separated that statement from what comes before it, what we just looked at. And this, in this instance, Paul simply states that the dominion of law, which can only condemn us because we've sinned against God, now has a new function for the people of God. The law of God is still here, and it's still a good thing. It always has been, always will be, no matter how many churchmen decide to, to you know, say otherwise. The law is still here. It's a new function. We are, we are under the order of grace, friends. That is the order we're under. We're order the under... We're, under the order of grace, not condemnation. The law still remains obligatory, but its power to condemn has been removed. And why? Because Christ, friends, Christ was condemned for us. The law did its work on the cross. For those of us who've been baptized into Christ, we too are dead to the law's condemnatory function. Being alive in Christ, we are alive in God's grace. Being under grace, we now live differently. We live differently, putting our bodies to work in service of the living God. New creatures with new life in a new creation. That is Resurrection Sunday. We labor for this in every area of life. Correspondingly, many Christians today have forgotten that our faith is not first and foremost a set of doctrinal or philosophical statements that are written down on paper. That's not what our faith is first and foremost. Long before one can develop the doctrine of justification by faith alone, he or she must be under the grip of the power of the Word of God. Long before you start writing down these doctrines, reading Scripture, writing it down, long before you can even do that, you have to be under the grip of the power of the Word of God. And I think sometimes we can become rather obtuse about this point. We like to reduce the gospel down to a, a mere formulation of dogma, um, when the reality is, it's an active power unleashed on the world by the Holy Spirit of God. It's the power of God for salvation. The salvation that has real-time, worldwide, historical consequences. Furthermore, it is the power of the Word of God that transforms the hearts of men. Never forget that. It transforms the religious root that makes us who we really are. And don't miss the importance, by the way, of the centrality of the heart. The Bible tells us that the human heart is the center, it's the crux, it's the foundation of who we are as unified and integral people, body and soul together. It's the issues of life spring from the heart, Proverbs 4 says. The heart, according to the psalmist, can speak. For example, the fool says in his heart. Proverbs, excuse me, Psalm 14.1. The heart isn't just the seat of emotion, it's the seat of desire, of volition, of thinking, of acting, all of it. Herman Boving says it like this. Even as the heart, in the physical sense, is the point of origin and the propelling force of the circulation of the blood, 
so also it is spiritually and ethically the source of the higher life in man, the seat of our self-consciousness, of our relationship to God, of our subservience to his law, in short, of our whole spiritual and moral nature. The reason I'm mentioning the heart here in the context of Romans 6 is because this is where God does his work. You know, you can debate philosophers and all these different things all day, but this is where God does his work. God does his work in the human heart. And it kind of, it goes from there, but he does it in the human heart. The transformation of the heart is, is how new life begins because we are resurrection people. Down payment now, finality later. And the resurrection Christ gives us today is a resurrection of the heart with a resurrection of the body later. Do not underestimate what Christ and his spirit does in the heart and how it bursts forth in the world. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Don't miss what you have in Christ. Don't assume, presume upon it. Don't assume that it's not enough. It is enough. And I think that's the mistake of the contemporary church, what we've made, frankly. I think that's why we have taken a backseat in our culture today. Um, that's why insanity is running in our streets. We have failed to realize and thus failed to preach the necessity of heart religion. And heart religion is not just for the heart, it's for the world. But that's where it starts. We have refused to see that all men and women put forth religious convictions from the heart. We have, we have believed that somehow if we would just be nice about things, that people would be attracted to that. And, and then maybe they would invite Jesus into their lives too. But where is the power? Where is it? Where is the power of resurrection life given to us today? Where are the preachers who do so with power? Do you, friends, know victory? Do you preach victory? Do you live in the victory that Christ has given us by his spirit, the new life imparted from above? Or do you live as though you're not sure the tomb is empty? Do you live as though you have not been buried with Christ and raised with him? How you live tells us what your theology is. So many Christians would rather be familiarized with defeat and retreat than be brought forth into the victory of Christ. And we are in the business of new life because Christ is in the business of new life. And how do we know? Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. It's time to confess our abdications, to repent of sequestering the word of God to the human heart and only the human heart, to repent of doing things in our own strength, the word changes the heart, but it doesn't stay there. It radiates outward into the world. We respond to that word, and we are thus directed by that word. And if you recall, I uh, stated this in our, back in our State of the Church address just a few months ago. Um, I said it then, I'll say it again, and I, I'll say it tomorrow. I believe and am convinced that the only way forward in our nation, assuming that we're willing to do a whole lot of repentance and work, is to recapture and redistribute the word of God through the proclamation of the gospel word. It's almost as if today God is going to put us in a position where we have, no matter what, we have to speak up into the culture. We won't be allowed to just hide and keep it between our ears. 
We won't. We will be overrun to the point where we finally, oh, last ditch effort, I guess we should pray and do something. That'll happen. But we'll have the power of God. We just, we got to avail ourselves of it. The power of, the, of God in his word opens up our hearts. It transforms our minds. It re-engineers the work of our hands. Resurrection life is that power, and it is yours in Christ today. The time is always now to go public like Jesus did. He was crucified in public for everyone to see. Where should our gospel preaching be? Hail to Jesus, Christ is reigning. All will bow and all will name him Jesus, King of Kings. From a new hymn that was put out by Pastor Tim. So believe on him. I leave you with Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one high and lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I will dwell on a place, I will dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit. Think about that. He will dwell on high, but he will also dwell with the crushed and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. If you want to be revived, you have to be lowly. And that's where the power of Christ prevails. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that your son is risen. We rejoice, Jesus, that you rule and reign over the nations today. And we are thankful, Holy Spirit, that your power is here and that we can, in fact, avail ourselves of it. Father, I pray for your church today. My heart is heavy. My heart is heavy for what I see in our culture. The insanity running amok, the confusion, the church um, not wanting to rest on sound doctrine but rest on pragmatism. Uh, we have gone astray, Lord. We have, and we have neglected your word. We have neglected the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would start with us here today, with Cross and Crown, with Street Church, with all of us here today. Would you break us? May we truly be lowly and humbled because that is where your work begins. When we're at the end of ourselves and all we can do is cast ourselves on you. Help us, renew us, strengthen us, Lord, for the battle ahead. And may this new life not only be something that we glory in, but something that we insist upon. Father, we're, we're thankful that the tomb is empty, that Christ is risen. We glorify you now. Teach us your word. Grant us your power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.